are any of y'all question askers? Like that's a big thing for you like to ask questions, just asking questions all the time. Maybe you have a child who is a question asker. Uh, you know, we, we have many, so one of them absolutely uh, is a question asker, but never accepting anything at face value. You're not just going to settle for that. You're always probing, always wanting to know more, always asking why, always seeking new information. Uh, when you're around someone like this, it can be exhausting. <laughs> always like, okay, enough. And yet they just keep coming with more. When you are this person, it can be frustrating because you don't always get the answers that you're looking for. And there, there really are some important questions that get asked in life. There's some important questions that get asked on a regular basis. What do I want to do when I grow up? Uh, what college should I attend? Will you marry me? That's an important question. How long has this casserole been in the fridge? All important questions. All really important. Some are more philosophical in nature, right? What is my purpose? Um, one of the best-selling books of all time, The Purpose Driven Life, was written around the question, what on earth am I here for? And obviously, it struck a chord in people because it has sold over 35 million copies of that book. So there are some pretty profound and significant questions that get asked in life. But of all the important questions that we ask ourselves, all the important questions that we ask other people or that have ever been asked in the history of question asking, there is one that eclipses every other question in both its significance and its importance. And it was asked by the greatest question asker who ever lived. Did you ever notice that Jesus asked a lot of questions? In fact, when people would come up and ask him a question, oftentimes he would respond with a question. That's really frustrating, isn't it? When you ask a question, you want an answer, and they ask you a question in return. But Jesus used that to teach. Jesus used that to probe. He, he got inside people's heads through the questions that he asked. And today we're going to take a look at the most important question that the most important question asker ever asked. And why this question is still just as important today as it was 2,000 years ago when Jesus first asked it. It's important for you. It's important for Trilogy. It's important for every person that you work with. It's important for your lawn guy. It's important for the person who cut you off in traffic yesterday. And no, it is not the casserole question. All of that is significant. It's, it isn't a new question. Obviously, Jesus asked it in the, in the New Testament. But we're going to take a look at how people answered this question then. We're going to see how Peter specifically handled this question. And then we're going to make sure that we have a solid handle on the significance of the answer for our lives and for Trilogy today. Our text this morning is Matthew 16, uh, verses 13 through 20. And this is one, get this, this passage is one of only two times in all the Gospels that Jesus mentions the church. Only twice in the Gospels does Jesus mention the church. So this is pretty significant. Let's read it and then we'll dive in. Matthew 16, 13 through 20. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. 
Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Then he sternly warned the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. So you can see why the question that we're looking at today is so important, because how someone answers this single question, how they respond, and everyone answers this question, Every single person who has ever lived answers this question, either directly answering this question or out of indifference or out of ignorance, they're answering this question. How someone answers it is eternity-defining and reality-shaping. And the question is this, who is Jesus? The greatest question that has ever been asked and demanded an answer is the question, who is Jesus? little bit of background for us here in Matthew 16. It is a critical turning point in the ministry of Jesus. Uh, by this time, he has been cr- preaching for many, many, many months. He's well known to the entire nation of Israel. His reputation has spread. His fame is everywhere. The common people have embraced him. They are championing him. They've seen his miracles. They've heard his teaching, and they're following him. And the word has spread from village to village. Have you heard about this man, Jesus? You've got to go hear this guy. Along the dusty roads of the Galilee, people are talking about him, wondering who he really is. Who is this guy that teaches the way he does, that performs miracles, that heals people? Who is this man, Jesus? Most importantly, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, have heard about Jesus, and they don't like what they've heard. They don't like what they've heard from the people. They don't like what they've heard when they heard him teach. They don't like anything about him because he's a threat to their interests. Jesus threatens the status quo of their power and their authority, and they don't like that. Earlier, there had been a pretty intense confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees, and they had accused him of doing miracles by the power of Beelzebub, prince of the demons. In essence, they tell him, you have come straight from hell. Not a wise thing to say, but that's how the Pharisees approach Jesus. And so by the time we come to Matthew 16, it is clear that Jesus has been rejected by his own people. Uh, his fate has been sealed. The shadow of the cross is now looming nearer and nearer and nearer. And even though the common people follow him and they love him and they love listening to him, they did not know who he was. Most of the people really didn't have a firm grasp of who Jesus was. They liked him, but they did not worship him. To them, he was a great teacher. He was a great miracle worker, but it stopped there. So Jesus, in the middle of this growing opposition from the religious leadership, who really had all the power, they controlled culture and society in ancient Israel. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the other religious rulers, they controlled how people thought, they controlled how people lived, they implemented the law, they gave their own interpretation, and they shaped it to suit their own interests. And so in the middle of this growing opposition and surrounded by crowds of people who liked him but really didn't understand him, in the rising chaos that would eventually lead him to Calvary, he did an unusual thing. He took his disciples and he left the country. 
packed up and left. They went north out of Israel into Gentile territory to a place called Caesarea Philippi. And what happened there would change the course of history. Jesus knows that before long, he's going to hang on a cross, and it's inevitable because the nation has rejected him, and his time is limited. He knows that this time, the, the kind of the fullness of time is here, and his plan has to move quickly now. He has to form a new culture of followers to carry on in his name after he's gone. That's what he has been doing, is preparing this crew to take his teachings, to take the way that he has shown them, and to implement that on the other side of his death. But before he can do that, he needs to know where these disciples stand. Where are his followers at? He needs to bring their thoughts out in the open, and he uses this moment. Are they with him? Do they know who he really is? Do they truly get it? Because as if you've read the Gospels, you've seen there are many, many times where the disciples do not get it. There are plenty of we're confused, we don't get it, we're thick-headed moments for the disciples. And so he challenges them. If you want to think of it in school terms, Matthew 16 is the disciples' final exam. Or maybe it's more of a midterm, okay? Maybe the final exam comes later on. But this is, at least it's a midterm exam where Jesus is trying to figure out where they're at. And he's never put them on the spot about this before. That's what's amazing. In all his time with them, he's never put them on the spot about this. He's never directly asked them this question, but he does in Matthew 16. In fact, Jesus actually asked his disciples two questions. One is the warm-up, and the other is the real thing. The first question is in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? So there's the first question. The Son of Man is one of Jesus' uh, most often used terms, titles for himself, uh, he refers to himself as the son of man quite frequently in the Gospels. And Jesus is essentially asking, where have the masses landed? Where have people come down on this whole, is he or is he not the Messiah thing? Where are people at? What's the public opinion on my identity? He asked the disciples, what do the people believe about me? So this is the first Gallup poll. Okay, Jesus is, is kind of like trying to get a feel for where people are at. What's the general consensus? And Jesus obviously already knows the answer, but he wanted his disciples to think about what other people are saying. He wants them to process this. And so they gave him the four most popular answers about who Jesus is. Some say John the Baptist. That was Herod's answer. Uh, others say Elijah. That was very popular because the Jews expected Elijah to return. Um, Still others, Jeremiah, he was the greatest of the later prophets, and so one of the last great voices from God uh, before he went silent, or one of the prophets. That is, he was a spokesman for God. Maybe he's this resurgence of, of the prophetic voice that has come back. And when we read a passage like this, we usually jump over, we downplay those answers, and just kind of move past them because we already know the right answer to the question, Right? I mean, we get it. We've, we've, we've got the, the benefit of hindsight. We can look back. We know how it turns out. So we kind of just skip all those. And we think, come on, guys, isn't the answer obvious? He brought dead people back to life. Like, you should be able to get this. But the answers the disciples gave, they were meant to be flattering to Jesus. I mean, the people they referenced were all heroes of the Jewish faith. To be thought of as one of them would be a great compliment, even if the people were wrong. So even though the people were wrong, you have to give them at least some credit because at least they were wrong on the right side of the issue. 
Okay, they were wrong on the right side. At least they knew that Jesus wasn't a bad guy. He wasn't the enemy. There was, and there was a supernatural element to their answers as well. Uh, for Jesus to be John, Elijah, Jeremiah, or another of the prophets, it means they'd come back from the dead. Okay, the people recognize that something special is going on in Jesus. That when he speaks, it's not merely some guy talking. It's not just another rabbi. And that his arrival is connected to prophecy. Because the Old Testament said that one like Elijah would come. And so they're connecting some of the dots, but they're not seeing the entire picture. So these people are not only open to the supernatural, to fulfilled prophecy, to Israel's restoration, but they see similarities between Jesus' works and words and what they've been expecting to come. One Bible commentator I read said that when the common people gave these answers, they were like a moth hovering around the light. That's how he described the people with Jesus. They were fascinated by this person that they could not fully understand. And by the way, this doesn't directly apply to the message this morning, but I thought it was so cool, so I thought I'd share with you. When I read that part about the moths in my commentary, I decided to look up why moths flew around lights at night. That's just how my brain works. I read that, and I started to think about it, and I had to scratch that itch, or it wasn't going to go away, and I wouldn't write any of the rest of the sermon. So I decided, anybody else like that, where you, like, you get something in your mind, and that's it? Like, Google is my best friend. Like, I don't know how I survived before Google, because I would have never found out that answer, and I would have had to wait to go to a library or something? Like, what in the world? How did we function? Um, but so a moth's eyes, okay, like a human's eyes, like ours, uh, contain light sensors, and they adjust according to the amount of light that the sensors detect. So in bright light, light from each one of the moth's thousands of lens facets on the front of their eyes um, is channeled to its own sensor. Okay, each lens is channeled to its own sensor uh, when there's bright light. In low light conditions, what happens is light from multiple lenses gets channeled to the same sensor to increase light sensitivity so they can see better in low light conditions. You follow me so far? Okay. Um, and think about what happens for you. You kind of experience a few moments of blindness when you turn on a bright light after your eyes have adjusted to darkness, right? Or the same thing, when you're, you go from bright, bright conditions into darkness, you just, you can't see anything, right? And so the same is true here. A moth's dark adapting mechanism responds much more slowly than its light adapting mechanism. It can recover from bright light very quickly, but it can't recover from going from bright to darkness very quickly. It takes much longer, and they are vulnerable for a long period of time. So once the moth comes close to a bright light, it has a hard time leaving the light since going back to the dark renders it blind for so long. And I thought, what a great metaphor for these crowds. The crowds kept following Jesus because when they were near the light, they could see for the first time and they didn't want to be blind again. Like I said, not directly connected to the message, but so cool to think about. I just really like that. So here's what I want you to realize this morning. It is some of you, you're going to leave today. All you're going to remember is the moth story. That's it. Um, but here's what I want you to realize. It is absolutely possible, even with a very sincere heart, to misunderstand who Jesus is. You can be very open to and even very hungry for spiritual truth and still not understand 
who our Lord is. It is possible to be wrong with the best of intentions. And I think there are churches today filled with people like this. They're around it. They're near the truth. They grasp some elements of it, but they don't fully understand. It's kind of typical of America today. There's lots of people who like Jesus but don't worship him. They think he's a good man, had some great principles, even a great man, even a man who had a special relationship to God. They're very sincere, but unfortunately, they're sincerely wrong. They do not believe he's the son of God from heaven who came to set us free from our sins. Many of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis, probably the greatest Christian apologist of the 20th century. He taught for many, many years at Oxford, uh, later at Cambridge in England, and in his book, Mere Christianity, uh, C.S. Lewis spoke to this issue of people who like Jesus and respect him but do not worship him. And this is what C.S. Lewis said. It's a rather lengthy quote, so I didn't put it on the screen, so you have to listen. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. That I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. To be almost right about Jesus is to be totally wrong. You can't halfway believe in Jesus. People try. It's like my, my kids. I tell them, you know, when you were growing up, uh, you can't somewhat obey. You know, partial obedience is disobedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. But with Jesus, you can't just kind of get halfway there and be okay. Why? Because we're not saved by good opinions about Jesus. We're not saved because we have a good feeling about him. We're not saved because we like his teaching and his stories. None of that is enough. To come close is not enough. To be in church and to hear some of this stuff is not enough. The truth about Jesus Christ has to be personally understood, personally accepted, personally experienced, and personally owned. The crowds were close to him, but close is not enough. That is why after he asked the first question about who do people say I am, Jesus asked a second one, who do you say that I am? Now in the Greek, the word you has an enormous stress in this sentence. In English, we would just write it with all caps, right? Who do you say that I am? In fact, the you goes at the beginning of the sentence in Greek. It's as if Jesus is saying, but you who have followed me and known me from the very beginning, who do you say that I am? And it's the greatest question in all the universe, and it is the one which every person must eventually answer personally. So here we arrive at Peter's moment. And we need to notice that Peter answers for all the disciples, okay? And that should surprise no one. 
um, who you've been with us for the first three weeks of this series on the life of Peter. That's because Peter was the DL of the disciples, the designated loudmouth. Uh, whenever there was a question, Peter would always be the first one to answer. He would jump right in. And when Peter answers here, he's not speaking simply for himself, but for all the disciples. I can see him, you know, as Jesus asked the question, Peter kind of looking around like, yeah. And everybody nodding like, yeah, go ahead, Peter. Um, and then we get his answer. And what an answer it was. And that, that to me indicates they've been talking about this. You know what I'm saying? The disciples have, this is not something that is the first time they thought about this. You know, when Jesus was off by himself, the disciples were like, all right, who is this dude? What is going on? And so I, I firmly believe that Jesus was the spokesman here, but I believe that this is something they'd all processed before. And we get his answer here, and what an answer it was. His response is very, very specific. Matthew 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah. In other words, the Christ. The Messiah and Christ are interchangeable. Messiah is a Hebrew term. Christ is a Greek term. Both of them perfectly applicable here. The son of the living God. Peter is basically saying, I know who you are. You are the Messiah sent to save us, to redeem us. You are the Son of God from heaven. It is short and simple. Everything necessary for salvation is included in that statement that Peter made. And I think some people would read that statement today and say, well, that's cool, but I would say that too. Sure, everybody here would probably stand up and say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But Peter was the first person in human history to say it out loud. He articulated it. And he said it when few were on the side of Jesus and many were against him. It takes guts to go against popular opinion, but it takes a special kind of courage to be the first. There are two other things we need to notice here. Peter said, you are the Christ. Not, I think you are the Christ. Or people say you are the Christ. Or even we got together and took a vote and we collectively think you are the Christ. It was a declarative statement. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. That was the Holy Spirit. Because no one discovers that truth on their own. Jesus tells him exactly that in verse 17, that you didn't come up with this on your own. You got this from heaven. You didn't go to seminary to figure this out. You didn't get this because you have a PhD. It wasn't something you picked up on the docks talking with the other fishermen. This came because God in heaven revealed this to you. And even today, it takes the Holy Spirit awakening us to the truth. When you came to faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit woke something up inside of you. Something inside of you was drawn to that truth. And that has huge implications to evangelism for every one of us. Because here's the thing, you don't argue someone into heaven, you pray them in. It's not because you're a great debater that someone's going to get saved. It's because the Holy Spirit is moving in their life. That's why it's totally freeing when you, you, you think about the, the, the analogy that was used that some plant, some water, others harvest. We all have different roles because it's not on us. We're called to be witnesses. We all have the same job. And where you fall in that process of someone coming to faith in Christ is all based on what the Holy Spirit is doing in their lives at that given point in time. If someone doesn't see the truth, right away we shouldn't get disgusted with them or fight with them or get upset with them. We need to pray for them. And the other side of that is that not one of us should think too highly of ourselves because we've found the truth. No, the truth was revealed to us. 
I am not more perceptive or a better truth seeker than somebody else. All I did was say yes when the Holy Spirit opened my eyes to the truth. And then we come to verse 18 and 19 and the huge statement about the church that Jesus makes. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell or the gates of hell will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. Whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Okay, pop quiz. Pop quiz. When was Trilogy Church founded? Who knows the year? Come on. Okay, here's the answer. 1990. No, not the year I graduated from high school, 1990, but 1990 years ago. In this moment, the church was born. This moment, when Peter makes this statement and Jesus responds with his declaration at Peter's confession, at Jesus' declaration, Trilogy Church was founded. We incorporated a whole lot later. But that's when the church was founded. What are we doing here? What is Trilogy all about? Trilogy is made up of people who share the same story. People who confess one revolutionary truth that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. He is the son of the living God. That is the fundamental principle of the church. That's the guiding principle. It's our organizing principle. We have staked our lives and staked our eternity on that fact. And until you believe that and confess that and are changed by that, you cannot be called a Christian. The problem is way too many people call themselves Christians who have not confessed that, believed that, and are changed by that. It doesn't matter that you may have positive thoughts about Jesus or that you think he was a very good man. You're not a Christian until you confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But once you do, you are part of God's church. And Jesus said that we are founded on the bedrock of Peter's confession, on Jesus himself and all the powers of hell. The gates of hell will not conquer it. We won't be defeated. We win. And I want to give you maybe a little different perspective on this section here. See, when people talk about this verse, I've always heard them talk like they think that the rock here is this defensive structure keeping believers safe and sound against the attacks of the devil and his minions, right? I mean, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We're protected. But I don't think that's how the metaphor was intended to work. If the rock of faith keeps us from the attacks of hell, this verse kind of gives us the picture of a bunch of gates zooming up from hell to whack us over the head. That's kind of not how it works, right? That's not the point here. This is a statement about the church on mission. That we, armed with the knowledge that Jesus is Lord, we are supposed to be storming hell. Working to bring out every person who is held tightly by the devil's chains. We need to be like soldiers with a battering ram going up against the gates of hell, rescuing people trapped in sin. We're supposed to smash the gates of hell, knocking them down. And Jesus says that the gates of hell are nowhere near strong enough to stop us. But here's the problem. Most Christians today do not really want to storm the gates of hell. We want membership in this community called the church to give us comfortable lives. 
ideally behind the iron bars of a modern gated community, to keep out the undesirables. So it's just people like us, and we're quite content to stay on our side of the spiritual tracks. And I think it's time that Trilogy became an offensive church in all the right ways. They were reaching into the pit and pulling people out. They were not afraid to wade into the mess that people find themselves in because Jesus has already promised us we win. He gave us the keys to the kingdom of heaven and we need to make sure we're using them and not letting them sit in the bowl by the front door. Because I think the authority that Jesus gave the church is untapped in the modern church. It begins with a confession of faith. Jesus, you are the Christ. But that is the beginning. Jesus placed us, his followers, in his church. And we need to live out the mission. We get to live out the mission that Jesus himself gave us, to rescue people from hell and to show them what it looks like to follow Jesus. That's what making disciples is all about. We believe something special about someone special. We believe that a man once walked this earth who was like no other man who ever lived. He said things no one had ever said and did things no one had ever done. He predicted his own death, and then he predicted his own resurrection, and he made good on all his claims. After he left, his followers took his message and spread it around the world. And for 2,000 years, countless men and women have believed that this man, Jesus, was indeed the son of the living God, and they have staked their lives upon it. That man was Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. That is what we believe, and that truth is what trilogy is founded on. That's what your faith is founded on. So where do you stand this morning? You can't leave until you answer. You don't have to answer out loud, but you've got to answer that question. Every person has to answer that question. Who is he? A good man, a great teacher, one of the finest fellows who ever walked the face of the earth? Or is Jesus the Christ? the son of the living God. Doesn't matter what people say. It doesn't matter what we say. Doesn't matter what Peter said. What do you say? Who is Jesus Christ? And after you answer that question, especially once you answer it correctly, you have one more question to answer. What will you do with that truth? How will it change your life? Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning for Peter's miraculous confession. And we thank you, God, on the heels of that, that you made your incredible declaration, founding the church, that Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And your church is founded on that truth. And the gates of hell cannot stop us. Lord, I pray first of all for those here this morning who may have been like a moth drawn to the light. They may have just been kind of flying around it. They're in orbit around the light, but God, they've never allowed the light to change them. And maybe they've had an awakening moment this morning. Holy Spirit, you're doing a work in their hearts, and I pray that you would do that right now, that you would penetrate their hearts And God, they've been in in orbit, but God, I pray that they would dive right to the center of the truth of that confession 
And Lord, there would be transformation that takes place in their life this morning. And if you're here today and God is just challenging you with that, that you've been around the truth and you've been acknowledging the truth, but you've never been changed by the truth, today is your day to go on record by making that same confession, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Surrendering your life to him and allowing that truth to transform you. And I just want to encourage you right now, just say those words, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Just confess that this morning and allow the Holy Spirit to do a work in your heart. And then there's some of us here this morning who we have, we have been changed by the truth, but we're not living in the declaration that Jesus made. We're living in the confession, but not the declaration. And today, Jesus wants you to say, I'm going to take up my sword. I'm going to take up the word. And I'm going to go and storm the gates of hell. I'm going to do whatever it takes to rescue as many people as possible because I've been sitting on the sidelines. I've been, I've been living in safety. I've been living in comfort, spiritual comfort. And God is saying, I want to disturb, I want to disrupt that spiritual comfort that you've been living in. And if that's you, I just want you to say, God, I'm all in. God, I'm all in. I'm moving forward. I will do whatever it is you need me to do. I will go where you want me to go. I will speak to whom you need me to speak. Use me, God. Jesus, we thank you that you have given us authority, that you have, you have blessed us with your authority, God. It's not ours. It's yours. And the church is not our church. It's your church. But Lord, we want to do, we want to be full-fledged members of your church moving forward to change this world for you. So God, use each one of us, use our families, use Trilogy Church in this community to be a light. And I pray that people would be drawn to this church, to the believers that are found here, and to the ministries that we have, and to the programs that we implement like moths are to a flame. And God, I pray that people would be drawn and transformed because, Jesus, you are the only way. We thank you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.